Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Seth again, and I get to walk us through the text here this morning. Um, my wife and I recently had a pretty significant change in our life, and uh, many of you probably don't know what that is, but we became two dog people. We got a second dog. You know, you probably thought I was going to say something else, but anyway, that's what he said. And you know, we're getting this dog, and um, I'm thinking about what type of dog is going to like best be a, an extension of my personality and be the most like me, and so I ended up getting this dog right here. There he goes. So that's me. That's me as a dog, right? That's pretty good. So you know, you sometimes you see somebody's dog, and you're like, man, what are they compensating for? You know, well, I'm I'm compensating for lack of fluffiness. So there's that. Or there's kind of my dog. But this is Herman. He's our second dog. He came at a good deal at $15 an ounce, I think is about what we got, got him for there. So um, he's, you know, two and a half pounds or something like that. You can do the math if you want to. But he's our second dog. Calvin's our older one. Herman's our second one. But he's real cute and real playful. But the, the problem with him is um, he came uh, with a pre-existing condition. He had a sinus infection when we got him. We didn't know that. We didn't know the dogs could get sinus infections or whatever. Our previous dog's never gotten sick. And so we uh, did what every good um, consumer does in the market. When you get a faulty product, you get your money back, right? Just kidding. We didn't do that. We, 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 took him, we took him to the vet. That's what we did. We took him to the vet. And we went and we got these antibiotics. And you had to squirt him in his mouth twice a day. And he uh, is getting better bit by bit. But his name's Herman. And one of the things that's interesting is he's super squirmy. And so the kind of getting this little two-and-a-half-pound dog medicine is kind of an ordeal. You know, I have to hold him and, like, grip his skull like this. And my wife has to do the thing and kind of get it in there and he's flipping all and you think how does this two and a half pound dog generate this much force you know, because it's so avoiding what's going on but every time after that the more we kind of gave him the medicine and the more he kind of got used to us and he began to trust oh when when he picks me up he doesn't drop me when they give me the medicine it doesn't kill me when over time he began to experience me and trust me and so even this morning when we gave him his medicine he just kind of got picked right up opened his mouth medicine went in it was no struggle and no fight and so over time as he gained experience of me and began to trust Taylor and I he fought less what we were um, walking him through and taking him to. And as we get here in the book of Ephesians, we see kind of a similar thing going on, is this idea that we're reminded here in verse 20 that Paul is an ambassador in chains. And he's here praying and asking and writing. I, I tend to assume that he's like in some big kind of seminary, academic hall, surrounded by scrolls and books and, you know, fine leather furniture, and he's being this super academic theologian, but he's in prison, you know, writing with a, a little candle lit, dark, dusty, nasty, and he's writing this book of Ephesians. And it's a reminder to me as I get to the end, like, man, this guy's full of faith. This guy is encouraging people to keep speaking the gospel. The very thing that got him thrown into prison, how on earth is, does he still have this faith that God is good when he yet keeps getting beaten up and thrown in prison and he right now is in prison? How does that happen? How does he trust the God who seems to keep leaving him high and dry? And it's similar with my silly little dog. The more that he trusts me and feels connected to me, he allows me to take him through things. It's similar with Paul that he is connected to the Father in an emotional and meaningful way. That's the idea of prayer. A lot of times we think of prayer as just saying certain things or using certain religious jargon or prayer as doing a certain um, ritual act, but prayer at its most basic level is connection with God. 
And when we recognize that we can have the faith of Paul when we are connected to the Father and we over time experience more of him because that trust, that faith is actually a function of our memory. And as we gain experience of God and we walk with him and we learn to trust him over time as we prayerfully connect with him as our life matures and goes on, we can have the type of faith that Paul has. That Paul is not a special guy. He's an ordinary person that God is using. And so our idea this morning that we're going to walk through this text as Paul keeps asking us to pray and pay attention is this, that we need to pay attention, pray, and be prayed for. This whole idea of that Paul has modeled this for us, he has walked this life, and he's inviting us to live the type of life that he lived, one of prayerfully connecting to God, prayerfully connecting to others, and paying attention to what's going on all around us. Let me pray for us before we begin, and we'll dive into this text. Father, I ask that this morning um, prayer would be seen as easier than we understood it previously. I ask that uh, there's people in this room who are in the middle of um, new territory, uh, new places, new jobs, new ways of living, and there is that um, nervousness, and I, and I ask that you connect with them here this morning. I specifically pray for the people who um, have felt far from you and who felt like you've left them high and dry in various circumstances, that they would at least see the example of Paul um, who's had a rough life and yet is still full of faith. And I pray that we as a whole um, can lean on those everlasting arms and grow in our experience of you and uh, walk closely. Amen. Amen. So this, this idea of pay attention, pray, and be, be prayed for uh, be, really comes from, at first, this verse 18. It says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Keep alert is the idea. Um, this kind of like reminds us of the or, earlier stories in the Gospels where Jesus with his disciples, the night that he is betrayed, and he takes them out to pray, and he says, keep alert, keep watch, pray with me all night because what's coming up tomorrow is a really big deal and yet these disciples keep drifting off to sleep and he comes back to them and says all I ask is that you stay awake and they're like oh we'll stay awake this time and then they fall asleep again all I ask is you stay awake and this idea of keeping awake because we tend to drift towards being asleep both physically and mentally emotionally we tend to get numb and not pay attention and so even I was looking at this keep alert phrase, and another way you could translate that is stay woke, which if you are on the internet at all, or if you're under the age of 26, you know that stay woke is what all the super internet social justice warriors say. You know that it's what the conspiracy theorists talk about, that when you see through what, what the way things actually are, and you, you stop believing what the big media is telling you to believe, and you stop believing what the world is conspiring to believe, and you really see that 9-11 was an inside job, then you're woke, you know, and you, you see the way things really are. And Paul is kind of using that similar language, like when you recognize the reality of what we've been talking about. And so what he's been talking about is this idea that there are these rulers, these authorities, these powers that are reigning over our present darkness, such that our culture is not a neutral playing ground, our government is not a neutral playing ground, your households, your places of employment, they're not neutral playing grounds, rather there are cosmic battles going on between light and dark, good and evil, the forces of darkness and the forces of light as we go about living our lives. So when we become awoke, when we recognize, when we see the fact that all that we see is not all 
that there is, but there's more than meets the eye living and breathing in our world, that our temptation to sin is not just me wanting to do bad things sometimes, but there's actually demonic forces trying to get me to walk away from the faith, I'm awake. I see more clearly that it's not the fact that religion adds things to the world and it, it gives you a reason to believe in all these delusions. Rather, it's skepticism or materialism that denies a huge part of reality. That we do live in a transcendent world, that there are spiritual forces at work all around us, and that there is a lot to be lost. And so what happens is we notice this, we believe that there, is, that there are angels and there are demons and that God exists and Satan exists and he's involved in our life, but our default setting is to be asleep to those realities. We pay attention to God on Sunday mornings for about 40 minutes because the other 40 minutes you're here, you're daydreaming because the sermon wandered off or something. We maybe pay attention to him when we pray at mealtimes, but most of our life we spend asleep to God's reality and um, not paying attention to the fact that there's a spiritual battle taking place. So he says, stay awake. Keep paying attention. Now, why do we want to stop paying attention? Because it is exhausting to keep paying attention. That's how I feel about, like, for example, our political situation right now. If we watch the Kavanaugh, the Senate hearing slash um, circus that was happening over the last couple of weeks, is it's ridiculous. I saw a poll that said, you know, 58% of independent voters disapproved of Republicans and the way they handled the thing, and that 59% of independent voters disapproved of the way the Democrats handled the thing. So it's like, great, everybody's doing bad, everybody's cynical it's not going well and it's kind of a huge and it's exhausting to keep watching and you go how on earth can I turn on the news one more time and find out oh look at people are being ridiculous turn it back off that's the, that, that's the, that's the news for you today but that's, that's just American politics a very small microcosm of the entire world much less you add into the fact that America is just one nation among hundreds and the, the world is just one part of the universe and now you're adding in all this stressful anxiety that we have, this going on all around us and we have to pay attention. Specifically, we need to pay attention to what's going on around us externally. That we watch, we look, we keep looking. That whether it's Republican versus Democrat, the Senate, whether it's how the Dow Jones is doing, whether it's how um, the NASDAQ is doing, the, the economy, is the crash coming? What's the mommy blog saying? What am I doing wrong? What is my employer saying? What's the new policy, the new boss, the, the family's divided, the household is crumbling, my neighbors keep making a lot of noise when I'm trying to go to sleep. There's all these different levels of stressful things going on all around us. Are the sales happening? Are the sales not happening? New into town, what do people think? That when we really pay attention to what's going on around us on just a horizontal point, and then we add to that the fact that there are angels and demons involved in our daily interactions, it is exhausting to keep paying attention. And how am I supposed to behave right when I have my heart rate up and I'm full of anxiety? Someone was asking me this morning, how are you, how are you feeling this morning? You're teaching. And I thought, well, I had an allergy attack a couple days ago, and so I'm taking all these um, decongestants, which, of which like they're one of the main ingredients in meth, so my heart rate's like really high, you know. <laughs> Haven't slept well the last couple nights because, you know, Sudafed has got me riled up. And so I come up here and I'm trying to be present, but my heart rate's up and it's hard, hard to focus and, and slow down and talk when your heart rate's up. And you add to that even just like the stress of life. And a lot of you live this all the time. How am I supposed to be a good parent when all this is going on? How am I supposed to make good business decisions when all this is going on? How am I supposed to function as a husband when all this is going on? And so we 
go, you know what would be easier? If I just medicated and stepped back and stopped paying attention. Instead of paying attention, I'm going to have four beers. Instead of paying attention, I'm going to play Xbox 360, even though I'm a grown man. Instead of paying attention, I'm going to just scroll through Twitter. Instead of paying attention, I'm going to veg out. But we need to pay attention. We need to stay awake. We need to remain attentive because this is God's world and we're living in it. And God does not want us to be a medicated, disengaged people. So the question is, how do we go on performing in the middle of this external craziness. So I grew up playing basketball. Mostly I played a lot of basketball in practice, not really in the games, in case that is an indication on my general basketball abilities. But I remember um, being at a practice that my dad was running, uh, and this guy came out who was like a free throw specialist. Because basketball is kind of this weird sport where most of the time it's a team sport. You know, you share the ball, you share the defense, you you cover one another, you're playing zone, man-to-man, whatever it is, it's a team sport. If the if the basket goes in, it's because someone created the opportunity and you you share it. But all of a sudden there's this moment in basketball where it's not a team sport anymore and nobody's watching the team and you're by yourself on the free throw line and you're 16 and you're already insecure and now everyone's looking at you and the team sport became an individual sport and you go your heart rate's up you've been really literally running around and sweating and now I'm supposed to perform this really meaningful obvious and how do you do it and remember this free throw guy talking about the importance of breath and breathing and how to pay attention to your breath how to take a couple deep breaths, and then shoot the free throw and how to focus. And this is similar to the idea of prayer, that Paul's going, all this craziness is going on all around us. And so you need to pay attention and keep alert and pray. That's the idea. So prayer, um, we, we breathe in the spirit and the breath, the wind and the Holy Spirit. There's, that Paul picks up on this metaphor here, this reality that just as the wind moves the tree, so also the spirit of God moves the people. You can't see it, but it gives life and animates what's going on. We were talking earlier this week, um, I was talking with Matthew, a guy was leading worship earlier, praying at all times in the spirit. What on earth does that mean? How can I pray all the time? That seems ridiculous. And Matthew said, what if we thought about it like this? How long could you go without breathing? What if we could only go that long without praying? That if we really believe that it is God who gives us life and animates and moves, that all that we are and all that where we're going and all of who we are as people, that if I don't stay connected to the Father, I'm going to suffocate and pass out. I'm going to fall asleep. That's the first thing that happens when you run out of oxygen. You fall asleep. Do you view prayer as that necessary to your flourishing as a human? Or is prayer kind of like this sugar on top, cherry on the cake situation? My life's pretty good, and I'll sprinkle on a little prayer. It'll be a little sweeter. Because if we're not connected to the Father through prayer, see, a lot of times, I, almost all Christians, I'm yet to meet a Christian who's going, I have a very good prayer life. You should learn from me. I've yet to meet that person. Even the people who have written books on prayer are going, this is still a process. And one of the things that happens is I start to take prayer seriously and I kind of go in this cycle where I go, you know what? I need to be a praying person. I want to learn to pray more. 
I'm gonna give in to prayer. And what I do is I'm gonna start praying. I'm gonna take it more seriously. I'm gonna carve out this time in my morning. I'm gonna wake up a little earlier. I'm gonna pray like crazy. And what happens is I do that for like four days. I feel really good about myself and I become self-righteous, which is not the true effect of prayer. And I feel like, oh, other people should pray like me. I've been really good. And then I, then I drop off and my discipline lacks. And then I go, oh, I'm not good at praying anymore. And it's like, and prayer becomes like another thing on the list, kind of like eating healthy or going to the gym. Everyone knows we should eat healthy and go to the gym. But most people don't do it. Even those who do aren't really. And it's just like another thing. And we see prayer mostly as an issue of discipline. If I only had more discipline, then I would pray. And part of that's true. But what I found here and what I see in this text in addition to the whole of scriptures is that the answer to become a praying person as we pay attention to the world around us is a recognition of our vulnerability. That the answer to become a praying person is not to become more disciplined but rather to become more desperate. That you see the world the powers, the authorities, the cosmic darkness reigning over what's going on. You see your life. You see how unable you are to affect your circumstances. You see that you can help, but you can't save. You become a parent and you realize that all I can do is maybe pull some weeds here, but this kid's gonna be who he's gonna be, and I, I, I can't save this kid. You become a business owner and you go, you know, I can't make people buy stuff, but I can try and sure help. And all of a sudden you recognize the lack of control, and all of a sudden what changes is not you gain more discipline, but your disposition changes and you become desperate. And I have to ask myself, am I bad at praying because I lack discipline or because I have too much self-confidence? So this is what's shocking to me is Paul the apostle. This guy wrote more books in scripture than anybody else and he prays and says, pray for me that I might have the words, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth. You go, Paul is praying and asking for the words. I would expect him ask for me that their hearts would change. Pray for me that I could get out of this prison. Pray for me that I could, um, you know, memorize more things. Pray for me that I would have great opportunities. Pray for, that's what you expect Paul to pray for, but he go, the guy wrote the words, and he's praying, give me the words, so it'd be really easy for Paul in this circumstance to go, I'm gonna have an opportunity to preach the gospel. You know what? That's fine. Paul was like the most educated, privileged person in that first century. The Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees, probably memorized the whole Old Testament, had already written a couple books that were considered scripture, God-breathed words. The guy was eloquent. He read the Greek philosophers. He read the Jewish philosophers. And he asked for, give me the words? It would have been so easy, I think, for Paul to put confidence in himself to be self-confident. I got the words. Just pray for me that I have the opportunity. And I have to ask, how often do I ask for the words? And how much scripture have I written? Zero and not enough. That's the answer there. How often do you pray for yourself? How desperate do you think you really are? How self-confident are you? A lot of times we talk about self-esteem and I need more self-esteem. And the answer is you probably don't need more self-esteem. You probably have too much of it. You probably need more God-esteem, more recognition that God is the sovereign ruler of the universe and he's created you and designed you. And so all the good that is within you has come directly from the Lord's hand and so you can't take credit for it. But even then, you still need the spirit to give life to what you're doing. 
See, a lot of times I don't ask for prayer because I'm self-confident. And what happens is I chalk it up or I kind of explain it away by saying, well, God made me like this, and so therefore I can lean into that. If God made me a good speaker, I don't need to ask for prayer for being to public speak. <laughs> and I call it confidence that God created me, but really it's just I think I'm great. And I don't pray because I'm self-confident. So Paul asked for prayer. Pray for me that I have the words. He's paying attention. He's going, probably, I'm going to throw him in prison again. Probably, I'm going to have the opportunity to speak to powerful people. Probably, I'm going to have the chance to push back on these external realities that keep getting Christians imprisoned. And you know what? Pray for Mary, it won't go well. And this is a bit of a shock to me because you might remember, turn with me back a couple pages to Ephesians chapter one, that Paul begins the book of Ephesians talking about predestination. Ephesians one, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God be Paul begins this book saying, God is sovereignly ruling over the universe. You cannot Stop him from doing his will. He has chosen you before the foundation of the world unconditionally that you would be saved and in, in, in him, that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that yes, we make choices, but God ultimately sovereignly rules over all things. And yet, as the book moves on, we go from Paul teaching on predestination and sovereign, um, the, the divine sovereignty, and he moves into human responsibility and asking for prayer. So Paul's not stupid. That's kind of a good baseline belief here. He's smarter than me. He's smarter than you. It's not like he forgot what he wrote a page and a half ago. But he says the same, it is true that God predestines all things, and it's also true that he listens to our prayers and he responds to them. Most Christians want to dismiss one of those two realities. Ah, predestination isn't really predestination. It's kind of like God pretending he chose, but really he's just kind of reacting. And if you dismiss that reality, you get kind of a God who's limp and he's just kind of, oh, if only he's like wringing his hands, hoping things get better. But then you also have this reality that God listens to the prayers of his people and he responds to them. And some Christians want to dismiss that reality. Why pray? It doesn't really make a difference. God's already predestined stuff. And you get kind of this fatalistic, impersonal God who's kind of just puppeteering the world. But yet, the scriptures teach that the kingdom of God comes in response to the freely offered prayers of his people. Now, I don't necessarily believe in the power of prayer. Rather, I believe in the power of a loving heavenly father who loves listening to what I have to say and is eager to respond and to, to me as I pray and listen to him. It's not like my words create things. Rather, I have a father in heaven who is close and he's revealed himself to me within history, and he's responsive to me. And that same father, in another sense, is sovereignly ruling over all things, and both of those realities are true. That God has a plan, and it will not be thwarted, and he also responds to our prayers. He's a person in history. Now, it takes a good degree of emotional and theological maturity to hold on to both of those realities and not dismiss one or the other. Most people tend to dismiss one of those two or try to somehow kind of make them fit together in ways that are unhelpful. 
Rather, I hope for we as Redemption Gateway can be people who really cling to the fact that God is sovereignly reigning over history so there's nothing to be worried about. And at the same time, we have this Father who's attentive and proximate and close and listens and responsive. Don't deny either of those two things. And when it comes to engaging our external word, we need to pay attention and recognize both those realities, that God wants us to pray, and Paul is calling us to pray. He says, pray for me that words may be given, in a sense that they might not be given. Pray for me that I might open my mouth, as a sense that I might not open my mouth. Pray for me, because if you don't, who knows? Are you comfortable with that tension? Because um, I don't think anybody's actually comfortable with that tension. (laughs) I think it's just a matter of holding on to both. God reigns over all things, and he's responsive and fatherly to us. So we pay attention to our external world, but a lot of people, um, after we kind of graduate from numbing ourselves by doing things we shouldn't do, um, and we now can like try and stay awake and keep paying attention to the world around us, what happens then is we notice that that external world begins to affect us internally, and it's deeply uncomfortable. And so one of the things Paul does here, which is deeply encouraging to me, is he is modeling for us how we can pay attention to our internal selves. So Paul here asks, pray, keep alert with all perseverance. It is tiring. There is endurance required. It's not that discipline is the central thing, but there is a component of this, which is discipline. You gotta keep pressing on. If you think that this is just a walk in the park, you're wrong, but rather there's a persevering element to this. Keep praying, making supplications, and also for me. Now, this is, this is a shock for multiple reasons. Again, Paul is the author of scripture and he says, pray for me. Paul's asking for prayer, not because he goes, I'm an apostle, I'm more attacked than you, but he's saying, I'm an apostle and I'm a normal person, pray for me. He's not asking for prayer because he's special, he's asking for prayer precisely because he's not special. I remember when I first went to seminary, they got up and going to Bible school, you know, and the guy got up and goes, now that you're going to seminary, you have a target on your back, so you better be praying people. And I thought, like, did we not have a target on our backs before? You know, and why is it on our backs? Why is it not in front of us? What's the point of this? And that's how I feel. Like, I, I go, like, as a pastor, I want you all to be praying for me, not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm just a person. And I hope you all pray for each other, not because you're a guest services person, but because you're a person person. That we're vulnerable, I'm vulnerable. That if Paul's at risk of saying false things, I'm at risk of saying false things. That if Paul's at risk of being conquered by fear, you're at risk of being conquered by fear. And so Paul asks for prayer not because he's special, but because he's not special. Pray for me also that words may be given. So he's praying for this content. Now why might Paul use the wrong words? What's he at risk of saying? That I might speak the gospel. Might he, be, might he speak something else? See, we're always at risk for not speaking the gospel because the gospel is inherently offensive to all people. The gospel is offensive to politicians because it says no matter who puts you there, there's a sovereign king who is risen who you are accountable to. The gospel is offensive to parents because it says you might have to love your kids, but you cannot save them and stop pretending like you're their kid's Messiah. There is a Messiah and he's not you. The gospel is offensive to husbands because it says you might be the leader of your house, but you are not the ultimate leader of your house. You have to give up your authority and give it away. The gospel is offensive to religious people, that is us, because it says you are no better off and no more loved by God because you 
show up to some religious gathering on Sunday mornings. And the gospel is offensive to irreligious people, people who don't go to church. Because it says, you might think you're deciding the right way for yourself, but you don't get to do that. There's a king and a creator over all things. And he's inviting you in. And he gets to decide what's right and wrong. You do not. That the gospel cuts everyone off at the knees and reminds us that we are all sinners in need of grace. And it is certainly available. And so we are always tempted to pacify people by softening the cut of the gospel by just making it some type of self-help sugar on top situation. To want to be impressive, to want to be included, to want to be liked. We cannot soften the blow of the gospel because softening the offense of the gospel takes away its beauty and its power because grace is offered unconditionally. And until you see your utter need and your utter desperation apart from the grace of God, you will not be grateful for God's grace in your life. That all people everywhere, no matter where you're from or how you've been or where your family is like or what your family was not like, were invited to repent, that is, turn from interpreting the world wrongly to turn into interpreting the world rightly, that is, as it's delivered to us in the scriptures. And Paul is saying, let me speak the gospel truly because I need courage and boldness. When he says, pray for me that I might have courage, pray for me that I have boldness, another thing, another way of saying what he's saying here is pray for me, I'm scared. Pray for me, I'm afraid. Because I know if I open my mouth, I'll get beaten again, I'll get humiliated again, I'll get shamed again, I'll get thrown into prison again. And there's a part of me that's full of faith and believes in the resurrection of the Son of God and knows that it's worth it. But then there's another part of me that's soberly afraid of that reality of getting beaten and imprisoned again. I'm kind of sick of it. That there's a, there's a duality to our internal worlds where we, we can simultaneously absolutely trust in the Lord Jesus and at the same time, there's a piece of us that would kind of like to Stop paying attention and check out. That Paul recognizes soberly that he is in danger of being abused, mistreated, and imprisoned. And so he is rightly afraid of that reality. You know, fear in, in many instances is showing you what is true. That's a fact. You'll be mistreated and beaten and it will not be a good time. And so you're being fearful in that instance is sane, whereas not having fear would be insane. So Paul's sane. He notices the reality. And what he, what he can do here with this fear is he can go, stop it. <laughs> stop feeling that. He can disaffect, disconnect, cut it off, call it a lie. It's a lie. Well, it's not. You'll get beaten up in a prison. That's true. But rather, he sees this fear and he used, takes this emotion as an opportunity, an invitation to take it to the Father and say, give me courage. Not get rid of my fear, but give me courage, which is the ability to obey in the middle of fear. And he also takes that fear and he says, Father, give me courage. And he takes it to his peers, his friends and neighbors, his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, pray for me that I might have boldness, that I might have courage, that I might, in the middle of this fear, continue to do what I'm called to do. And that's actually the essence of intimacy. To pay attention to the external world, to see how the internal world is affecting us, 
to be able to be aware of how we're experiencing reality and then to invite other people into our experience of that reality. Some of the reasons why we have a struggling intimacy in marriages is that we don't know how to do that. How are you? Fine. But when we really learn to pay attention externally, it will affect us internally, and we reach out to people and say, please pray for me in the middle of this. Paul says, I'm scared. Pray that I would have courage, that I'm an ambassador in change. That is, I am a political lobbyist on behalf of a different world called the kingdom of God, and it is fundamentally opposed to the way things are here. Pray for me that I have courage, that I would keep opening my mouth with accuracy and content and courage and character and that I could do what I'm called to do and live as I ought to live. This comes in the context of this larger discussion of this armor of God. And earlier last week, we talked about having the shield of faith and how there's these flaming darts being shot at us, these, these lies or these accusations or even sometimes these realities that really sting and really hurt. And we have the shield of faith. And I kind of picture it like there's this line of archers and me by myself trying to fend off all of these arrows coming. But what happens is Paul is modeling for us that it's not your shield of faith by itself, but it is our shields of faith that actually protect us. And rather than one person by themselves wielding some shield, we actually have something that looks more like this, that we are in formation together, being protected not just by our faith, but also by the faith of other people that we intercede for one another, that when your shield of faith is too small to handle what God's got you called to do, you reach out for help and other people's shields of faith help protect you and guard you against what you're going through. That our God loves to work in response to the prayers of his people and he's offered us this ability to trust God on the one hand and on the other hand when we notice our emotions and they're telling us something about how we're experiencing reality, we invite God into it, we invite others into it and it creates this intimate connection that we're known and we're loved. And I for so long have like lamented and not looked forward to prayer request time in groups and churches because it's like, oh, I saw on Facebook that my third cousin's cat has a toothache. Can we pray? You know, and I'm like, ugh, give me a break. Not praying for that, you know, but, but it does say, it does say pray, it does say pray for all things. So, pray for all things. But, but the type of prayer where we're actually being vulnerable with other people and inviting people into our anxiety and our stress and our fear and saying, please intercede for me because I need help. This is when we're functioning like a body of Christ, when we're functioning as a team, when we're not walking alone, but we're in formation, more protected than we ever could have been by ourselves. Why don't we ask for prayer more often? mostly because we're either not paying attention and so we're naive to the reality around us or because we're trying to protect our image of self-sufficiency. I don't want to ask for prayer in a vulnerable way. I'm going to ask for like some generic, you know, finite, but I don't ask for prayer vulnerably because I like being seen as self-sufficient and doing fine. And until I give up that, I can't have this. Let me pray for us this morning. We can move on. God, thank you for leading us and guiding us and taking care of us. And thank you for Paul's example here, the apostle who wrote scripture, who is just an ordinary guy 
that it was okay for him to ask for help, to ask for prayer. I pray that this uh, need to be perceived as self-sufficient and self-reliant, that we would put that to death, rather that we would um, look forward to the opportunity to walk in desperation, to connect with our brothers and sisters here, and to follow you um, wherever you're leading us to go. Amen.